Yes, my name is Robert Macmillan, and you're all very welcome to the latest edition of Erchul and Hjoil, and his traditional music podcast in which we go behind the music and talk to trad A-listers about the people they are and the music they play. And for anyone who doesn't know, Andrihid is an arts centre based in Belfast which promotes the Irish language and traditional music throughout the city. This week's guest is Neil Martin, cellist, piper, composer, radio and television presenter, bon viveur and all-round good egg. You're very welcome to Urchul and Kjoy, Neil. Good morning, Jazz event, Shaw. Uh, just a little bit, uh, Arish. Now, you've told me this before, but what is your first ever memory of hearing or being struck by music? My very first memory of life is of music. And um, it's listening. I remember as a child, I guess I was two or three or something like that, um, and remembering it for the first time. Every Sunday morning, my father would play uh, Bach's B minor mass on the old record player and he'd bring the, the box out into the, the hall, the record player out into the hall and he would play and turn the volume up and it would reverberate around the house. And I remember specifically the Kyrie Alley song from Bach's B minor mass. So that, and I knew there was something wondrous. You couldn't voice it uh, at that young age, but I knew there was something wondrous um, uh, about Bach and about that particular piece of music. And I used to then, as I got older, imagine, to me, music is still a bit like the heavens. When you gaze up into uh, the, the sky at night, a starry night, it's limitless and it's beyond comprehension. And for me, the best of music still is that. Bach had that effect on me and lots of other music since, but it, it's the kind of, it's the fathomless, it's the endless thing of all good art. Um, that I think moves me most of all about music. Yeah, well, that's, uh, of course, classical music that you, you first heard. So how did you get into traditional music? Was there music in the family, for example? There was. Um, well, first of all, it was the record collection. My parents had an incredible record collection. Um, Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Sean uh, O'Reilly, uh, Seamus Ennis, Nicholas Tobin, The Beatles, uh, Clockwork Orange film track, lots and lots, a, a lot of jazz music as well. Ray Cooter, Louis Armstrong, all sorts of stuff in the house. Theolonius Monk. Um, so it really was through the record collection that I was first introduced to traditional music. And then my mother's late brother, Tommaso Cannon, was a piper and a, a, a singer and a, a great man altogether. And he uh, played in a group called Nephili. And they were an important uh, trio, uh, late 60s, early 70s, and they recorded <clears throat> their records uh, for Outlet up here in Belfast. So when they would be recording in Belfast over the, the, the weekend that they would make their record, they would very often come to the house and they would play a few tunes. So that was my first time to see Illin Pipes in the flesh, was uh, my uncle Tomas with, with pipes on him. So I, I think that kind of caught me. Uh, the first piper I think I heard was Seamus Ennis. So this was an odd instrument. You know, it caught something in your ear. And then to see this awkward contraption of bag and bellows and drones and leather and wood and the keys, the brass keys and so on, 
it, it, it was intriguing. And then, of course, uh, like so many young fellas, when I heard the piping of, of Liam O'Flynn, uh, when I would have been maybe nine or ten, um, uh, that would have been an RT radio, the long note and so on. I was completely flattened right to the back wall on, on hearing O'Flynn's piping. Yeah, I remember Nathalie playing in Coming Up With An Art uh, one wow. night, which was a, 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 a fabulous occasion. But, you know, Belfast at that time when you were growing up, you know, was it a, a convivial place for people who wanted to play traditional music? No, no, it certainly wasn't. Um, it was anything but that. You had to be very careful. I, I, I mean, I can remember, for example, when we'd be driving through Belfast or somewhere, and if there was traditional music on and you were coming to a police or an army road check, you turned the music down because you didn't want, there was some notion that it might have associated you with one side or another and it could have got you into trouble. And I got little bits of hassle going through the security barriers as a teenager carrying ill pipes and so on. And also, Robert, I do remember this. There was a, a North Belfast branch of Coltus Kjolgri and used to meet in the Scout Hall uh, uh, up in North Belfast. And some people who would come down to that would come down from County Antrim. An elder gentleman, fiddle player and a banjo player. And they didn't like their neighbours knowing that they were going to play traditional music because they were of Protestant background and that wouldn't have been a popular thing. So there was a certain difficulty um, all round in regards to traditional music, I think, in the in the 70s. But there, there were also terrific sessions. That's when I first started playing sessions. Uh, a house in the markets, Alistair Heron had a house in Joy Street. Um, and we used to meet there on Saturday afternoons. And that was my introduction to... Um, uh, you know, I remember Dermy Diamond, Kieran Carson, uh, Andy Dixon, Trevor Stewart, um, Jim McKillop, the flute player. All, all, all of that world uh, was introduced to me when I was maybe 14 or 15 in, in Belfast. So it wasn't all doom and gloom. Yeah, I remember the story of Gary Hastings and Brian Mullen uh, went around schools uh, talking about shared history of music. And one of them started singing a song in a Protestant school, a song of praise of the IRA. And just before he was lynched, he said, no, hold on every second. And he sang exactly the same tune, but it was something like the Loyal Boys of Cumber. Yep. And that's the way things were. You know, we stole, borrowed each other's tunes, but it's the same music. And this mm. nonsense about whether it's, in, it's nationalist music or unionist music is that. It's just nonsense. It, it is. It's utter politicization of everything. We have much more, when I say we, it's a terrible blinkered thing to say when we think of this place, we think of black and white and Catholic and Protestant. We have way much more in common. Language and music are of, they're a very high art form and they belong to no man or no woman or one side or the other side. They're high art forms and they belong to the people of this island, of the entire island, north, south, east, west, doesn't matter what your religion you were born into. Um, that, that, it's very precious stuff and it should never be sullied by politics, but sadly, both language and music, as we know, have been in the past. Uh, absolutely, and it brings me nicely to uh, a chap that you worked with in, with in Flying Fox, 
a certain Mr. Davy Hammond. What did uh, Davy teach you about music? I learned so much from Davy. God, Sivis, I, I, I learned so much about so many different things. I, I, I was aware of Davy's voice before I met him. I can remember hearing him sing, I wish my love was a red, red rose on the radio. And then I was aware of Field Day Theatre Company, uh, who uh, that started, Field Day started in 1980, and it was a great radical forward thinking uh, theatre company and music and other things associated. So I was aware of the excitement of Field Day and David Hammond was on the board of Field Day. It was started by uh, Stephen Ray and Brian Freel and then the board augmented and Davy Hammond, Seamus Dean, Tom Paulin and Seamus Heaney were on the board. So it was this incredible northern energy of intellect and artistry that was spearheading a new way to think about theatre. So there was great excitement uh, about Field Day. And then I remember sometime in the mid 1980s, I think it was, or early 1980s, seeing Davy at a concert in the old arts theatre in Botanic Avenue. Maura O'Connell was doing a gig and she dedicated a song to Davy Hammond. And he stood up to take the, the bow and he had sideburns and yellow boots with big Cuban heels on them. He was a kind of a unique man. And then the terrific night that it was, I think it was 1986, I was having a, a drink with Artie McGlynn in uh, the Crown Bar in Belfast after Artie had been on stage with Makeham and Clancy in the Opera House. And Artie said to me, come up to Davy Hammond's house. I said, no, I've never met the man. I can't go to the house of a man, you know, uninvited by the, by, 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 by the, by the man of the house. I can't do that. And Artie says, no, come up, come up. And I refused and Artie insisted and we went up and Sure, sitting in the living room was Makeham and Clancy, who, the two boys. So it was a brilliant introduction uh, to Davy that night. And we played music, Artie and Nollig and myself played music and Davy sang. And that was the relationship that blossomed out of that. So I learned a lot from Davy. I then worked with him in Flying Fox Films as, you know, eventually um, after years of training and learning, I produced and directed some television programs. So I learned all of that from Davy, but I learned as well about literature in various ways. He introduced me to lots of stuff, to films, to books, to creators, to artists, uh, Shawcross, uh, Blackshaw, you know, uh, wonderful uh, expansion of the artistic side of the mind that Davy enabled. And um, I, I, I learned a huge amount over many years from Davy. And he's gone now, I think, I think 12 years uh, this month, actually, and there's rarely a day goes past I don't think about him. I miss him terribly because he was such a, a kind of benefactor and an, an enabler and a very generous soul um, who was very, very willing to share his experiences with anybody who was uh, prepared to listen. And I found him fascinating company. Fascinating. Okay. Uh, at that stage, uh, mid-1980s, did you know what you wanted to do in life? I, I, I don't know about that, but I knew it was going to be music, uh, that music would always feature. I think I knew that, Robert, from my mid-teen years, from maybe about 1978 or something, I knew music was going to play a very important part of my life. And because I was playing Ellen Pipes and cello, so traditional Irish music and classical music, I never found them odd bedfellows. I found that they complemented each other and I could see 
how they married happily. So I suspected, and I remember saying to my father when I was in my teens, that whatever I did in music, I suspected that it would be a mix of things. It would be traditional music and other musics, classical music and heaven knows what, but mm. I knew there was going to be some sort of mix of my learning experience. I knew that, I, I suspected that that was going to happen. I'm he, sure, as it turned he, out, that did. Yeah, he didn't try to encourage you to get a proper job? No, uh, not at all. He was delighted when I got my degree uh, from Queen's. Uh, he said, that's terrific, son. He said, you have your degree. Uh, nobody can take that away from you. Now go on and do whatever you want. So he, he was encouraging of, of, of my, I think he could, he, he could understand the passion I had for music. Of course, he knew it was a, a dodgy kind of business. Uh, but, you know, my father died when he was very young. I've actually outlived my father now. But um, he knew that things were starting for me. And I'm just sorry that he didn't see all of the great things that uh, I've been lucky enough to experience since. Yeah. Um, I think he would be, he'd be proud. Yeah, well, of course he would. Now, you're best known now probably as a composer of orchestral and choral works. Is the ability to write these types of works, is it innate? Were you born with it? Or did you learn it? Is it a mixture of both? How did you become... I think it is a mixture of both, Robert. Going back to my very early days, I, the word now in adulthood that I have for that feeling in my childhood on hearing Bach's B minor mass was awe, just the awe of big orchestral composition. I was drawn to it. I, I, I wanted to get into that world. Um, and I remember there was a television series called, I think, The Family in the 1970s. It was one of the early fly-on-the-wall docks uh, of a family in England. And I can remember still there was a certain part in, in, in this thing where uh, flute and cello were playing music. And it caught me in so far as that I wanted to know why those colours were coming off the music with those pictures. What was that about? And that was something that I kind of got into around that I suppose early 70s or something like that. So I started writing little bits of music when I was about 10 or 11, you know, little simple things. And because we had piano lessons, my mother got a piano when we were kids and I used to like sitting at the piano and juxtaposing notes or seeing what a chord might sound like or finding your own melody. So I think there's an innate interest in it. But then of course, there's craft to it as well that you must learn and develop of orchestration and how melody works. And when you write big, large scale orchestral works, um, most certainly there's a lot of skill and craft that has to be learned. And you have to listen to a lot of music as you grow up and understand how an orchestra works and what colors you would like to develop and find in your own music. Um, and another great muse in it all, of course, is the deadline. Because, you know, if you have a conductor waiting on a score and an orchestra manager waiting on the you sending the parts through because the concert is in two months time or whatever, by God, that moves you to get through, you know? Yeah, one of my favorite works of yours is uh, No Tongue Can Tell. And there's a personal history behind that, isn't there? There, there certainly is. That, that, that was in 2004, Robert, no tongue could tell. And it was round that stage, maybe a year or two before that, that 
more and more I was drawn to the magnet of composition and I wanted it to become my life. I was about 40. I was born in 1962. So 2002 or 2003, I just knew I wanted this to actually be how I put the day in more than anything else. Um, so in 2004, I got that commission to write the opening piece for the Belfast Festival at Queen's. Um, and it no tongue can tell is a concerto, I suppose, for Ilan Pipes and Orchestra. And my long, my initially he was my teacher and then he became a colleague for uh, 30 years. Lemo Flynn was the soloist in that. So what a buzz that was, Robert, to write a piece for Lemo Flynn that opened the Belfast Festival. This was my first big orchestral commission. And the story behind No Tongue Can Tell is that of the life between my maternal grandparents, Hugh and Brady. And uh, Hugh, my grandfather, to cut the long story short, got ill when he was a ship's engineer and he got ill when he was at sea. And he came home uh, up to Coleraine. The boat went round the coast and into Coleraine. They, they said to him, Hugh, will we bring you into Belfast? He says, no. Brady, his, his wife, was pregnant with their fifth child, my mother. And he said, no, Brady, Brady has the kids at home, go up to Coleraine. By the time they got round to Coleraine, the appendix had burst and the toxins were through him. And he lived a few days um, uh, in the hospital and he was given morphine to kill the pain and that kind of made him high and he didn't realize the gravity of the situation. And he sang a few songs on his deathbed because he, he thought he was at some sort of gathering and party. So that image formed a great backbone that the image of my grandmother swollen, pregnant with her fifth child, my mother, sitting beside her husband, dying in hospital, him not realizing really what was going on, holding his hand. I allowed myself imagine that granny holding uh, my granda's hand and him dying. I mean, it's a terrific emotional thing and that it was in my own family uh, was a very rich uh, springboard from which to write this, this concerto. It, it gave you all sorts of emotional directions and thoughts uh, and images in the mind that I used to write that piece. Yeah. Uh, one of the most astonishing pieces of theatre I've ever seen was The Conquest of Happiness. And that's based on uh, the book by the English philosopher Bertrand Russell, and yeah. uh, which, of course, uh, you were involved. And was it connected to that that you played at uh, Mostar Bridge in Bosnia? It was indeed. Um, we we uh, it it was an amalgam of uh, three uh, theatre companies: Prime Cut in Belfast, a theatre company in Ljubljana, and a theatre company out in uh, Sarajevo in Bosnia. Uh, that came together. So it was a big kind of international production and our opening night of this extraordinary piece of theatre was under Mostar Bridge or on the river right beside and the, the bridge was incorporated into part of the production. We had divers uh, who, who uh, dove off the bridge into the water. It was an extraordinary experience to be out uh, in the Baltics and, and, and playing out there. Yeah, deeply moving. Uh, undoubtedly so, as was the, the theatre piece. Here's a strange question, maybe. Are all your classical and choral works recorded? And if not, does it uh, bother you 
that some people might find that classical works are in some way ephemeral in as much as they are performed once and maybe never again, or maybe two or three times. Uh, does that bother you that sometimes you spend a year composing a piece that may be played once and maybe never heard again? Absolutely, it bothers me. I think it's a terrible return on the investment of the commissioner, um, of the composer, and uh, of that performance. I mean, to, to write a large-scale piece of music, uh, for example, can take you a year. It really can, a year on one piece. And I've done that. When I wrote the opera, uh, um, uh, I would say I, uh, virtually nothing else uh, did I write that year but the opera. And I think it's a terrible return to, to get such a short thing. Very few classical composers um, get their works recorded because it's a very expensive medium. You need the orchestra, you need a big studio engineer and all the rest of it. So it is frustrating that you invest all that energy, time, emotion into something for one or two performances. It's dreadful. But, you know, it's a bit like theatre. I often think the same about theatre. You work on a theatre production that has a two-week run and that's it. You know, it's, you know, you've costume, you've wardrobe, you've design, you've actors, you've musicians, you know, the whole gamut of a big production. To get two weeks out of it is, 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 is terrible. Now, the, 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 one of the, the largest scale pieces that I um, have ever written, Robert, is being recorded at the moment by one of the RTE orchestras, RTE Concert Orchestra. And that album will be released, I guess, next year. Who knows with COVID, you know? Mm. Um, so I'm delighted to have a large scale, um, you know, orchestral album of my writing coming out. Okay, t t tell me more about that. <laughs> well, <clears throat> the, the central piece on it, the main piece is um, Sweeney, and it's an adaptation, it's a setting for solo voice, narrator, and orchestra of the Bwila Hivna, Seamus Heaney's translation of Bwila Hivna, Sweeney Astray. So I edited Seamus's uh, work down and created a, a story out of it that could be told. It's about 55 minutes, uh, that piece, and the singer is Irla Ulenard. The narrator is Stephen Ray, and it's the RT Concert Orchestra under David Brophy. So it's kind of brilliant to have such a big thing recorded, you know. And there are two shorter pieces on the album as well, Robert, that I'm delighted about. One is the slow movement from No Tongue Can Tell. Uh, that movement is called And They Loved, and it's about the deep love between the grandparents. So that is on the album as well, as Sweeney. And then a, 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 a string work called Lacrimae Rerum, that I wrote, uh, oh, I suppose about 10 or 12 years ago now. Actually, I wrote it in the unwanted vacuum of having written a large orchestral work that was very intense, 12 months. I wrote a, a choral symphony called Asa, based on the flight of the airs, and there was a television uh, program about it as well. So it was a very intense period of 12 months filming, writing music, big, orchestral work with big choir and so on. And immediately after, I was in this vacuum where it's the come down really after anything that's very exciting. I found myself a little down, you know, nothing serious, but kind of down because your whole system had been so engaged. And I wrote this piece, Lacrimae Rerum, the tears of things um, as a reaction to that. 
So those are the three pieces on the album that will be out. You mentioned a few names, sir. You've been lucky isn't the word, but you've been very lucky in that you have worked with such a lot of uh, great people. You mentioned Stephen Ray and Seamus Heaney and uh, Liam O'Flynn and Matt Malloy. I'm just wondering, I wonder what kind of conversations people of that ilk have with their when they're sitting about, do they have normal uh, conversations? Do they tell jokes about flatulence? Or is it something much more deeper than that? It's probably all of those things. We most certainly have jokes and we have dinners and we have bottles of wine and we have sport and laughter. And then we have very serious engagement with art as well, because that kind of is what draws us all together. I first collaborated with Stephen Ray in 1988 on a field day uh, music and uh, words evening in the Guildhall in Derry. And around that time, uh, I suppose it was really into 1989, they had a production of a play by Terry Eagleton called St. Oscar about Oscar Wilde. Trevor Griffiths directed that and they wanted a musical director. So I, I got the call then from field day about that. And I remember Stephen Ray saying to me at that stage, uh, back in the late 1980s, whatever you're doing, surround yourself with the best possible people, because that just keeps everything at a very high level. And I listened carefully to those words, and I have been extremely fortunate to have collaborated with those people that you have mentioned and many others as well, you know, who, who have just been such inspirational, terrific, genuine artists. Um, I do think I've been very fortunate, but the more you work at it, the greater the fortune that comes, and I don't mean fiscal, uh, you know, the harder you work, and the, 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 and especially if you're lucky to work with these people at that level and at that layer, um, it kind of perpetuates and it generates other connections and other work. Which I think brings us beautifully, you see what I've done there? It brings us to the West Ocean String Quartet. Okay. Which, um, what are the individual strengths of each of those players that, uh, when the four of you come together, is able to produce such fabulous music? Well, the idea uh, uh, of a quartet that straddled two camps was Seamus Maguire's idea. And he had it sometime in the 1990s. And I had guested, Seamus knew something of my music and I had guested on an album, a solo album of Seamus's. And he sparked the idea, he said, wouldn't it be good sometime to have a quartet, a string quartet, two violins, a viola and a cello that would live somewhere. You know, it could be traditional music, could be other music, I don't know, he said, but not playing classical repertoire. Um, and the idea appealed to me. And then a couple of years later, we, we, we got together. And I think the strength of the quartet is Seamus is primarily a trad player, traditional, very strong, Sligo style. Um, he did have some classical training when he was young as well. So he has a little of that side, but mainly traditional and, and, and beautiful traditional music. Second violin is Neve Crowley, who's predominantly a classical player. And I think the yin and yang of that was a very interesting mix to get somebody who was two, two, two violins coming meeting at a point, coming from two different directions, but meeting at a point that is able to create a colour that is 
yes, it's about them, but it's also kind of unique because it's two different styles happily merging. Uh, then Ken Rice plays viola. Ken is, is a violinist with the Irish Chamber Orchestra, but he has straddled many different camps and uh, uh, tango music and piazzola music and jazz and rock and uh, lots of studio experience. So he is a very broad gamut that he brings and then whatever I bring and to the, to the table. But the interesting thing, Robert, after 20 years together as a quartet is that the personalities and the relationships develop as well as we develop as humans, as we develop as musicians, and as hopefully I develop as a composer and arranger of the thing. So some, somehow I have felt in the last number of years, we have kind of, we've come to a, a deep appreciation and understanding of the complexities of four people trying to make music. It's like a quadruple marriage in some ways, you know, um, because you have to be open and honest and caring and sharing and you have to be direct sometimes and we all have to leave the minds open for trying new colors little tributaries off to the left and the right where you can try new things not everything works but we're at a stage now in the relationship musical and personal where the equilibrium is is comfortable really you know, and I, I love i love that world between worlds of of classical and traditional, if you like, in the West Ocean. You know, it goes back to my formative thinking, I think, when I was 16, I'm going to live in a space somewhere between worlds. It's like the humour, Robert, as you know well, between two languages, between, say, Irish and English are the only two languages I really have. But I love the space in between them, in between those two things. It, it's it's a, a limitless space. And I find that in the music as well, between traditional music and, and classical music, that world in between is just, it's wonderful. It's without limit. Yeah, and they're not, neither, they're not musically exclusive. Some people would think that Irish traditional music is very, it's, it's very simple music. But the more I speak to musicians, uh, the more I realize that it's very complex. And some people will play, 10 people will play a tune 10 different ways. And it's so uh, deep and maybe that's part of its problem that so many people will say, but it all sounds the same. Mm. And Paddy Glecken was saying that you need to actually listen uh, to a tune and take it in. And maybe people nowadays just don't have the time to do that, they're in a rush. They want to hear their three minute uh, pop song and don't really have the time or the depth or the inclination to get into the complexity of uh, traditional music. Although at the same time, they can still enjoy it and they can still tap their feet. But there are so many different levels and so many different aspects of traditional music. You know, when you talk about jazz, you know, is it traditional jazz? Is it freeform jazz? Is it Latin jazz? And it's the same with Irish traditional music. There are so many different varieties and West Ocean String Quartet add to that infinite variety of what so-called traditional music is? Yeah, I mean, it, I, I, first of all, I agree. It's a very complex music form. Anybody who says it all sounds the same, well, their ears aren't terribly attuned to what's going on. Uh, once you get into traditional music and you start listening, and Paddy Glacken is quite quite correct, once you start listening the to the, the colors and the nuances and the individualism and 
the performance skills of so many musicians across so many instruments. Um, it really is a very complicated uh, music form. Yes, it's built on a eight bar structure, but then you could say traditional jazz is built on a 12 bar structure or blues or something like that. <clears throat> those, those limitations that the art forms find themselves in or that you know, have, have, have led to it are by no means restrictions. You could say, okay, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is you know, a, an incredible work of ever developing themes and colors and so on through it. And it is a fantastic piece of music, of course it is. But traditional music is no, no less complicated within its own world. Um, I, I remember there was a, a, an ethnomusicologist who sometime in the 1970s, I think it was, brought a, a musician from a, a tribe in South America uh, up to New York to go to a concert. And they had to have an interpreter with them. And I, I, I forget what, it could have been Beethoven actually, a Beethoven symphony. And afterwards the Native American ethnic musician was asked what he thought of Beethoven's incredible work. And he says, through the interpreter, he said, yes, it's nice, but it's rather plain. So his ears were attuned to something that in his mind was rather complex. And he found the orchestral work, you know, okay. But my own music, he was saying, is much more involved and intricate. And I think that's a great yardstick, um, you know, for any ethnic musics in the world. They are incredibly uh, complex things once you, once you get into them. And, you know, I do think that whatever the West Ocean String Quartet has done, it has offered an alternative view, perhaps, of traditional music. And that's fine. And some people are going to love it, and some people aren't going to love it, and that's fine. But I think after 20 years, I think the quartet has made a mark and it has done something uh, that hadn't been really done before in that way. And that's fine. That's, that's grand. We're, we're, we're not saying it's the be all and end all of anything, because it's Music is ever evolving. It's always turning over. It's always finding something else to do. And um, I think we, we have a little niche in there. Yeah. Do you have any small projects on the go? Obviously, you're not ready for theatre anymore because there is no theatre. Uh, but I'm thinking of a, a lovely group called NASC. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, might we see NASC again some No, sense? I don't. It's years since we played and everybody's moved on into other directions. But that, that was great. It was short-lived, but great fun and, uh, and great energies. What I'm really enjoying is along, uh, alongside the quartet is Paddy Glacken and Catherine Ennis, Seamus Ennis's daughter, uh, is an organist. Paddy Glacken, Catherine Ennis and myself do the odd outing. Um, so... Mostly it's in churches because we need an organ. Um, but it's a fascinating world as well because Catherine is a classical organist and a very, very fine one. Um, so it's a, such a terrific instrument to write for and to find the balance of colors uh, within organ and fiddle and pipes or cello, whichever I would be playing, is really a beautiful, a beautiful space to be inhabited. So I, I like the smaller things as well, of course. Uh, chamber ensembles if you like are, are, are a great thing but no there's no theater and there's, there won't be any film work uh, coming up during lockdown uh, between march and june i wrote a violin concerto um which was a deeply 
uh, moving thing because the soloist in that concerto when it gets world premiere next year will be my eldest daughter Maeve um, and that'll be in St Andrews in Scotland it's it it, it uh, was a commission really from St Andrews University where Maeve did her first degree and so on so that I found a, 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 a terrific way to put COVID in um, challenging and because it's so so many layers yes you're writing an orchestral work for a, a solo violin and orchestra so it's complicated and technically difficult but it has all of those emotional layers as well me knowing that the soloist in the for the premiere is going to be my daughter um so yeah there's uh it's a strange world we find ourselves in now as as, as musicians and composers Okay, now that I've lulled you into your false sense of security, here's the hard question. Um, they're sending a rocket off, and there's a time capsule in it, and they want uh, a piece of music from Neil Martin uh, to represent the work that he's done over these past 40-odd years, maybe more. Yeah. So now, Neil, we'd like you to tell us what uh, your choice to go into this time capsule is. Well, that's very, very, very difficult because um, I suppose the piece I'm proudest of is going to be the next one, if you know what I mean. Um, if, <clears throat> if Sweeney was recorded, I wouldn't mind that going into the time capsule. And I wouldn't mind any of the West Ocean string quartets music going into the time capsule or stuff I've done with any of the musicians I've collaborated with. But since you mentioned time capsule, I kind of find it intriguing because I wrote a piece uh, ooh, about 2000 and I don't know maybe about 2005 called A Space for Dreaming and A Space for Dreaming is the opening track of one of the quartet's albums I think it's the Guiding Moon album and on that album I wrote a, a, a suite for the quartet and Matt Malloy and Matt was telling me that uh, an astronaut he knew from America was going up to the space station and he had given her a flute because she's an amateur flautist to take up and I said Matt we must get a, a copy of the guiding moon to the astronaut when she comes back down again uh, back down to earth uh, in six months time he said yeah yeah no 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 problem and by chance a couple of days later I was talking with a journalist in Boston who was writing a press release for a choral work of mine that was being premiered out in Washington, D.C. And he knew this astronaut as well. It lets you see the, the, how close the whole world is. Um, he, he had uh, taught this uh, uh, astronaut when she was doing studies in, uh, in Boston. So he sent me a link to the journalist out in Boston of an interview that this astronaut, Katie Coleman, had done a podcast from space in which she talked about she was busy doing her science experiments. She, uh, you know, had books to read. She had her flute with her, she said, in this podcast where she played music. And she dealt with her emails. And the little devil in my head pinged at the thought of an email. And I wondered, dear God, this piece of music that I wrote, A Space for Dreaming, was my musical reaction to a photograph taken from space of Ireland on a beautiful, cloudless evening. And you could see the shadows of, of uh, night coming round with the rotation of the earth. And it just looked so beautiful. I wrote this piece of music called Space for Dreaming. And 
uh, I thought, I wonder, could I get that track to her when she's up in space? Could I send an email with an MP3 attached that would get? So to cut the long story short, I got an email address for her and I emailed a space for dreaming to her. And I got an email. I got up one morning. I was checking emails and it's, hi, Neil, Katie Coleman here from the space station. Delighted to uh, get that piece of music. Can you please send some more because I love your music. So that was an extraordinary experience to have a piece of music that you wrote about a vision, a photograph of the earth taken from space to have that listened to open space. Um, as the as the International Space Station circumnavigates the globe every 90 minutes. You know, it's kind of extraordinary. And I'm getting emails from space. And the, the Katie, then I sent her four albums, all the quartet stuff up. And she asked me, and I love this, but she asked me if I could send a JPEG of the artwork of the album cover. And she said she would try and, and take a photograph through the window of the capsule with the earth in the background uh, uh, holding the, the, the JPEG and take a photo. But she said, the printer is a bit moody up here. It doesn't always work. So I sent the, I sent the JPEG up to space, but she wasn't able to print it off uh, to get the photograph. But so in a very long winded way, if there was a time capsule going up, it would humor me to think that a space for dreaming might be in that. Okay, that's an absolutely astonishing story from a person who's had an astonishing career making astonishing music. So thank you for that, Neil. Um, really, really enjoyed the, the chat. Look forward to anything that you're doing in the future. Well, I've enjoyed the chat very well, Robert, and thank you for all your support uh, over many years. Thank you.
Well, that's all for today, folks. So until the next time, from me, Robert McMillan, and the Erchudan Kjoil podcast from Madrid, Slana Gisbanacht.